Hello and welcome to the Maryland Democratic Party podcast. It is a beautiful Friday afternoon in our state as we're recording this, and I am on this podcast with two of the best Marylanders around. I'm Brandon Stoneberg, your state party comms director and podcast host here today for the first episode of our second season. And man, do we have a top-notch headliner to kick it off. But first, I am thrilled to be here alongside the best co-host, my mentor, the most wonderful, hardest-working chairwoman around, our fearless leader. I could go on and on, but Yvette Lewis, how are you feeling today? I am great, but I will tell you, usually I give a nice little, you know, little intro and little thing here or there as we're starting this podcast. I am so excited about our guest today. I'm going to say, welcome, everybody. Sit back and enjoy the ride. And Brandon, I'm going to turn it over to you because I don't want to take one minute of our special guest time. That's good because this intro for our guest is going to take longer than most of our intros because his resume is, is, is quite the dandy here. Today, we welcome a member of our congressional delegation. And like I said, this might be one of our longer intros to date. Here we go. <clears throat> Our guest is the son of an aide to JFK. He graduated high school at 16, was an editor of the Harvard Law Review, spent more than 20 years as a constitutional law professor, once represented Ross Perot in a case regarding presidential debates, according to the internet. I, 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 don't, I, wasn't, I wasn't old enough to remember that part. But as a New York Times bestselling author, is the second guest we've had on here who has defeated Dan Cox in the head-to-head -head general election, and is the nation's most fearless fighter on the front lines in defense of our democracy, Congressman Jamie Raskin, welcome to the show. Brandon, thank you for that very kind introduction. I'm so delighted to be with you and the great Yvette Lewis and with uh, all the wonderful True Blue Gems out there. Well, first off, the best news came in the last few weeks. Uh, you are cancer-free or cancer in remission, correct? That is correct. Uh, the doctors did a full-body PET scan, and they couldn't find any cancer cells. So we say it's in remission, and I'm just on a schedule to come in for checkups. So... I'm very psyched about that. And I want to thank everybody for standing by me and all the encouragement and solidarity. That was at the, the front of our minds. And we could do a whole episode just on, on celebrating that moment. But I know we want to ask you a lot of questions. You've had a great career and I want to kind of dig into that. I'm going to go, I'm going to start with a question that we'd like to ask uh, some of our guests. Now you've had an incredible resume and a career that's extensive impact has touched the lives of who knows how many Marylanders. We, don't, we'll, we maybe never know the full extent, but if you can go back and tell that 16-year-old grad of Georgetown Day School that in a few short decades, he'd be a lead impeachment manager of a U.S. president and the ranking member of a House Oversight Committee, what, was his, what would his reaction be? Well, gee, um, you know, I was, um, I mean, a victim of child abuse in the sense that my parents sent me off to college when I was 16 years old. And so... Um, I wasn't quite ready for it. I didn't completely enjoy college the way everybody else did because I was too young when I got there. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I've had a wonderful career and I love our state. I love our Democratic Party and I love um, the people who are my constituents. And, um, um, you know, it's been a wonderful career, but history plays tricks on all of us. And, um we obviously weren't expecting to lose our beloved son, Tommy, and we weren't expecting the nightmare of the insurrection on January 6th, which my family got caught up in and um, all of these different things. Um, you know, when I was in the state Senate, Brandon, I um, and I was majority whip and part of bicameral Democratic majorities. Governor O'Malley was in. We got so much wonderful stuff done. I mean, I was like a true 24-7 legislator. I mean, I led the fight, the fight for um, marriage equality. I led the fight to abolish the death penalty. I led 
the fight for medical marijuana, the fight for tough anti-drunk driving laws, the national popular vote legislation, which we kicked off and has gone around the country. Um, and um, when I got elected to Congress, I thought it would kind of be the same thing. But I, the same night that I got elected, Donald Trump got elected, even though, I mean, Hillary beat him in the popular vote, but he squeaked out with uh, Vladimir Putin's assistance, that victory in the Electoral College. And um, so much of our time has been spent on defense, just defending the Bill of Rights, defending electoral democracy and free and fair elections. And so I wasn't expecting all of that, but it obviously lined up with my background in constitutional law. And there are parts of the Constitution that nobody ever paid attention to before that have been coming alive over the last several years, like the Foreign Government Emoluments Clause, and now like the uh, provision on public debt, Section 4 of the 14th Amendment, which says that the validity of the public debt shall not be questioned. And so, um, you know, I feel that Providence, in some sense, has put me where I am to be part of this struggle to defend everything we believe in. I yeah. want to go back to that night for a minute, because I remember that night so vividly. I was working for Chris Van Hollen for his campaign. And it was it was like, a, you know, sweet and sour, right? You know, we had you and we had Chris and it was so much jubilance um, in the state as we had that room off to the side with the television going. And we were just seeing states fall one after the other. And it was just such as I was in such a state of suspended disbelief while trying to be happy about you and everything that was happening. And then right there, not five feet away from me was this big screen television where everything was falling apart. Tell me what that was like. Cause really literally remember we had that big screen oh. in the room. As you were I, mean, giving I, re I remember so much of it being with you. And it was like the shortest celebration of my life. It was like 30 seconds because they declared me winner. I started my speech. And then all of a sudden I saw everybody looking up at the screens in horror, like it was, you know, psycho or Halloween part three or something. And I turned around and they're declaring Trump the victor in all these states. And so it was a long, hard night. And of course, it went on for a few days, um, but it was not what we were uh, expecting at all. Obviously, we made uh, some mistakes at the national level in terms of campaigning. And there was a lot. I mean, you know, I read I don't know if you read this book, you guys, but uh, a book by this guy, Christopher Wiley, who worked for Steve Bannon at Cambridge Analytica and was basically involved in the Putin Trump campaign to use Facebook to manipulate public opinion in America. And you've got to read this book. I mean, it's got a, an unmentionable title in public. It it's a one word title, but the first syllable of it is mind. And there's one other syllable. So maybe you can complete it. But it's basically the way that Cambridge Analytica dissected in a psychodemographic way the American public and then preyed on people's worst impulses. And the first sub demographic they went out looking for was people who fit this profile. And tell me if it sounds familiar to you. Uh, Machiavellianism narcissism and um, psychopathy, basically people who met Donald Trump's psychological profile. And it was like 2.8% of the American people, they normally didn't get involved in politics, but they were activated, you know, and they found these people through 
personality quizzes that they would do on Facebook. And so they went after these little demographics and they manipulated them. And a lot of that was the unseen part of the campaign uh, that they did. You know, and another thing they did was they figured there were certain groups of people that were never going to vote for Trump, like young African-American men. But they said, all right, we'll target them with propaganda about Hillary Clinton, like Hillary and Bill Clinton. All they talk about is super predators and pushing, you know, um, anti-crime legislation focused on young African-American men and so on. And they work to demobilize a lot of our people, too. So, um, you know, that was really the first social media campaign. But now we're moving into artificial intelligence era. So we've got to be on top of that. And we've got to be aware of everything that that Trump-Putin axis is going to be throwing at us because we know what's coming. You guys make my job easy because my my whole next question was about that 2016 election night because uh, because Congressman, you were coming off a pretty long year. That primary was tough with you had Trone, Jawando, Matthews, Barbe. That was a really expensive, uh, long primary. And then, like you said, you you have that election night where you're making your speech, and then the TV starts rolling that you know that, that Donald Trump had won. And I believe one of your first acts in Congress was to try to uh, what came around the certification of results. Is that, is that true? Yeah, well, now well, here's what's interesting about that, because the Republicans um, uh, try to poke fun at me about that. Of course, none of us were involved in trying to engage in a violent insurrection against the union or try to get the vice president to lie about his role or step outside of his role or anything. But there is a fine bipartisan tradition under our weird electoral college of raising problems in the election through that process. And I was making, I think, a perfectly accurate point about the fact that there were electors in Florida who also doubled as elected officials, which uh, is uh, against state law in Florida. And so um, we, we were not trying to uh, attack any of the police or violently overthrow the election, but we were raising various problems that had taken place in the election. And now the Republicans say, oh, well, you know, people have been doing this for decades or centuries, nobody has been trying to engage in a violent insurrection to overthrow our form of government. Right. So now to to kind of bring back to the to Maryland and the district here a little bit, uh, I know your district has changed a little bit because of redistricting, but how would you assess where we are as a state right now and where your district is right now compared to where we were when you took office in, in 2016? Well, the, the great thing, of course, is that we've been making real progress under the Biden administration. I mean, those were two of the most productive years in any presidency in American history. I mean, we, you know, we completed the job on uh, COVID-19 and we went from, you know, most of the schools being shut down in the prior semester to the vast majority of the schools being able to reopen and massive expansion of vaccination. And we also passed the Infrastructure Act, which was remarkable. I mean, I sat there for four years under, under Donald Trump. We had infrastructure week. We had infrastructure month. We had infrastructure rhetoric. We just didn't have an infrastructure bill and we never had a vote on anything. And then as soon as Biden got in, we got serious about it. A $1.2 trillion investment in the roads, the highways, the bridges, the uh, internet, the the rapid internet expanding into rural areas, the ports, the airport, cybersecurity, you name it. The Democrats 
did that because we really believe in it. And the Republicans had concurrent majorities in the House and the Senate. They had the White House, but they weren't interested, even though we were begging them to do something on it. So we did that. And then we we did, of course, um, you know, we uh, expanded Medicare. We um, passed the Inflation Reduction Act with the most dramatic investment in uh, climate legislation in uh, American history or world history. Uh, really an amazing investment uh, that was made. We uh, substantially lowered prescription drug costs. I mean, I had constituents who are spending $10,000 or $15,000 a year to pay for their prescription drugs, where it was really in competition with groceries and other basic household expenses. Under Medicare, we limited that to $2,000 a year. And if you're diabetic, um, your insulin shots are now capped at $35 a month. And the Republicans say they, not only did they vote against it, they want to repeal it. So we're talking about dramatic differences between the parties. Um, but I would say against all the odds and even through all the authoritarianism and the racism and the white supremacy and all these horrifying things that we're fighting against, we're still making progress. We're still the party of progress. And, you know, I like to say we're the party of democracy because we believe in free and fair elections. We stand by the outcome of elections. We believe in voting rights for everybody, regardless of who they're going to vote for. The Democrats always do that. We don't try to disenfranchise people who belong to country clubs or something like that. We let everybody vote and we want everybody to vote. Like that's real democracy. And of course, we are standing up for democracy around the world. I mean, the battle royale right now is in Ukraine, where the people of Ukraine are defending their sovereignty, their democracy against the world's biggest autocrat dictator, Vladimir Putin, who's trying to undermine and destabilize democracies all over the world, starting with ours. And he did it in the 2016 election with documented cyber espionage and cyber sabotage against the Hillary Clinton campaign, against the DNC. That's been documented by 17 different security agencies in America and the U.S. Senate in a bipartisan report. So I don't know what the Republicans are talking about with their Russia hoax. I mean, their hoax is that Donald Trump somehow doesn't support Vladimir Putin when he was asked in his last stupid town hall meeting that uh, CNN sponsored, do you support Ukraine or Russia? And he wouldn't say. He said, well, I don't want to get involved in that because I, he said he didn't believe in winners and losers, which was the first time I ever heard those words come out of his mouth. Every other speech, it's either you're a winner or a loser, but suddenly he doesn't believe in winners and losers because he wants to uh, maintain all of his... Uh, relatively open, but definitely back-channel support for Vladimir Putin uh, and all of his destabilization of democracies around the world. So we're involved in a global struggle here, and people should be totally clear about that. We're not just defending democracy in Maryland or in the country. We're defending democracy every place. And so the Democratic Party is the democracy party. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask you, actually, I want to get both your opinions on, the, on this next question. Next month, we're going to be honoring our good friend, Stenny Hoyer. And recently, our friend Ben Card announced that he won't be running again when his, his term is up. So the, the, the congressional delegation will, will change a little bit there. But these are two legendary Maryland legislators that you, you both spent a lot of time around. What has it been like to work with those two in particular? And what are your impressions of the next wave of Maryland legislators coming up? The West Moors, the Aruna Millers, the Brooklyn Airmans, et cetera. Congressman, we'll start with you. Oh, well, um, 
I mean, I love all of the aforementioned people. Um, and, um, you know, Steny, of course, uh, is a great student and master of uh, the history of the House of Representatives and parliamentary procedure there and uh, was able to make so many things happen for us as the majority leader and continues to be, you know, a legislative force to be reckoned with. And um, Ben Cardin's career is one I loved. I mean, he worked his way up the old fashioned way from Baltimore politics into the General Assembly, into the uh, House of uh, Delegates, where he was Speaker of the House and then became a congressman in the House of Representatives and spent many years there and then ran for the U.S. Senate. And so he's rendered service at so many different levels and has been, of course, a great champion uh, of Baltimore. And um, that feels like the end of an era to me, but I'm um, equally thrilled and passionate about this new generation of uh, leaders. I love Wes Moore and uh, Aruna Miller, and I think they're doing a great job in Annapolis. And um, uh, my uh, close friend, David Moon, just became the majority leader in the House of Delegates. He ran my first campaign for the state Senate and is uh, uh, an unsung political genius strategist. Um, and uh, I think it's amazing to a lot of people that he's the majority leader of the House of Delegates now because, you know, he's always seen as, um, well, not seen as he people saw him not wearing a, a, a tie a lot of time, not wearing a suit. And he's... Uh, very much of his generation, whatever generation that is. I don't know if he's a millennial or an X or a Y or Z. They all get mixed up in my mind as I sink into deep middle age here. But I love David Moon and I love the new generation of people that's uh, coming up um, in in Maryland. And I'm, um, you know, somewhere between that old guard and next to the uh, David Moon people. And Yvette, I want to ask you the same thing, because you've been close with, with Steny for, for a long time. And you said that when Senator Cardin called you, you got a little emotional when he told you his, his decision. I did. Um, and I said, I'm probably the only person that cried when you told them that you were stepping down um, when, when he called me, um, because it's I don't see it necessarily as an end of an era. I think of it as a, a, a flag placed on a legacy, right, um, where um, he has done so much. He's been such a good friend. That my friend Ben thing is real. He really has been a friend uh, to all of us. And as I told him, I knew that I hope and I know that he will continue to be a friend to, to me personally, but to all of us throughout the state of Maryland. With Steny Hoyer, um, he's been my congressman forever. I, you know, Everyone knows the story of him being responsible for me, even being an opera singer, uh, because of uh, him helping uh, me in my early, in my early, early career uh, with, with introductions that he made. Um, uh, for me. So uh, I think that it's it's interesting to see them as they move to different chapters uh, in their lives, of course. Uh, but I would tell everyone of our young leaders that are coming up, the ones that are on the horizon now, study them. They, they are not one hit wonders. They are not one hit wonders and study what they do because everything that they do and Congressman Raskin, I have to say that you are right in that in that uh, vein of, of, of servant leaders. Everything that they do and that you do is all about the people, it's not about you. And that is why you are successful, that is why they are successful. It's all about the people. I told you, my mother refers to you as her congressman and she's in North Carolina, so there you go. <laughs> well, I love that. Well, look, I mean, our party is about the people. So to do justice to our party, that's what our careers have gotta be about. Um, and, um, 
you know, that's what every election is. And 2024, Yvette, I, I know we tease about how every election is the most important one of our lifetimes, but this one really feels like it to me, I got to say, because, you know, fool me once with Donald Trump. All right, shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. And so we've got to get so serious about this. I mean, everything is on the line. When he first ran, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember clearly a lot of people saying, well, you know, he seems like he's kind of for gay rights and he's not really going to take people's abortion rights away. And, you know, he's from New York and he, he was confusing people about what he was actually doing. You know, he was running right. He was running left. He was running center. He was saying a lot of stuff. At this point, we know exactly that he is running on an authoritarian program. And that's why this election is dramatic, because uh, it is really a democracy party against a tyranny and insurrection and corruption party. And so we dare not lose this one. And, you know, I think each of us needs to question where we need to be in 24 to make sure that the right outcome happens and not just a squeaker. We need a landslide for the Democrats across America. Absolutely. And Congressman, I want to, to look at some of your work in, in D.C. once again. We touched on it earlier, but what does the what does the day to day as a ranking member of, of such a prominent committee look like? And especially in oversight, there are some you got you got a cast of characters there. You got some of the most vocal and that's probably the nicest way I can put it. GOP members. Uh, with Green, Perry, Bays, Gosar, but also some incredible Democrats uh, and you know, and talented Democrats, and Katie Porter, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, Cory Bush, and, and my congressman, Congressman Infume. Uh, what's it like working with that collection of legislators? Well, the, first of all, uh, it, it's an extraordinary group of people on our side, and a lot of the younger, uh, more junior members I helped to get elect get elected to office, and I helped recruit them uh, to oversight. I wanted them. Uh, on our committee. And of course, AOC is my close friend and is the vice chair or right now the vice ranking member. So she's my number two. And if I ever I can't be there, she fills in uh, for me. But we've got remarkable people. Uh, we've got Robert Garcia uh, from California. We've got Greg Torres from Texas. We got Rebecca Ballant from uh, Vermont. We got Jared Moskowitz from Florida, Dan Goldman from New York. I mean, it's really a remarkable uh, group of junior people. And I so love you know, getting to be the coordinator of all of them, like the coach. Um, and I learned so much from Elijah, who recruited me to the committee back in the day when I first got elected in 2016. So I think about Elijah all the time, all the time. And, and he was such a, a great chair. And he was somebody who showed me how to be deeply invested in even the most junior members, you know, because the old school House of Representatives was, well, it's all about people flattering the chair or the ranking member and sucking up to them. No, it's really the other way. It's the chair or the ranking member investing in the development of the junior member. So it is a great team. And Mfume, of course, is just awesome. And his um, historical memory is just indispensable in terms of everything that we do. But look, if we're in the majority, the oversight committee should be about implementation of everything we passed, like we passed the Infrastructure Act. Well, we want to implement it to make sure that the money is getting down to our states and counties and localities for the construction of bridges and broadband access in the rural areas and so on. So I think that's a re remarkably important function because, look, you know, legislators love the drama of passing something big. But then we often go on to the next thing. But it doesn't mean anything if you don't implement it and you don't educate people about what you've done and what's happening. Now, 
under the Republicans, it's all about let's get Joe Biden. But since there's nothing to get Joe Biden on, let's get Hunter Biden, who's obviously had a lot of problems in his life, but they haven't been able to link any of them to Joe Biden, despite every effort to do it. And so our job at that point is to be the truth squad and to expose uh, GOP disinformation, propaganda and lies. Mm. And I got to say that my team has been doing a great job since this started. I mean, there are even Fox News talks about what a flop um, Comer's oversight investigations are and how the Republicans are just embarrassing themselves. And part of that is what Kevin McCarthy gave away on his way to becoming speaker, because you'll recall there was that agonizingly protracted week of him selling off this committee and that subcommittee gavel and selling off uh, this issue to that person, this that issue to that person. Well, at the end of it, you ended up with just pandemonium. And it was like the Tower of Babel. So instead of having, you know, they kept saying to me, well, we're going to do to you what you did to us with January 6th. I said, well, uh, then you better make it bipartisan because ours was you better make it professional and you better you better rely on the actual facts and tell the facts to the people in a coherent way. Well, they've done the opposite. It's not one investigation. It's 75 different investigations. Right. It's Afghanistan. It's Hunter Biden's Biden's briefcase. It's his laptop. It's D.C., which totally backfired in their face as they tried to demonize the people of Washington, D.C., just on and on. Nothing has worked for them. And if they had one good hearing, nobody would even know it because it's drowned out just by all of the noise. So I think they've forfeited the possibility of even getting public attention, um, which was everything that they wanted to do. One thing you just did that I think is so excellent that I think uh, we need to do more of, as you talked about all of these things that uh, Joe Biden has done, the Biden administration has done, you didn't just give it a title. You gave it a title, but you gave it an action item, what it does. And I think people need to feel personally that connected to what it's done. They need to know that you didn't sit for an hour and a half in traffic this morning because a pothole was filled as a result of, and you do that so well. And I think if we just make it very granular, continue to make it granular like that across the country, everybody will then equate the, the name of the bill with them personally. So thank you for doing that. Well, I appreciate that. You know, even when I talk about prescription drugs, sometimes people say to me, well, you, you got to appeal to the young people by talking to them about college student debt. And I'm glad, you know, they remind me about that. And we got to talk about the college debt issue. But even young people know what it costs their grandparents or their parents to get the prescription drugs. So, you know, this is, um, you know, these are family issues that uh, we're dealing with. But uh, but obviously, you, you know, the Biden administration has also been very invested in young people and creating opportunity, apprenticeships for young people and helping young people deal with the problem of college debt, because a lot of people are getting out of college and it's like they've got a mortgage on a house without the house. Yeah, I, my, a lot of my peers are are in that 20s and 30s uh, age, and, and we've all we've all felt that for sure. Actually, one thing, Congressman, you brought up that I was kind of curious about. I even I didn't even have this question planned, but you brought up kind of that agonizing week where the speaker vote was happening. What was it like being in the room on the on the Democratic side when all that was happening? Because all of our votes were going very uniformly to our friend Akeem Jeffries, but you know, a lot of people, a lot of the public saw the funny photos of Democrats, you know, reading a book or knitting while the Republicans were in a mess on their side. What what was that week like yeah. for you guys? Well, it did get a little whimsical there, and uh, I started tweeting out because you know my friend. Uh, 
Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez is a big tweeter. So she said, come on, let's tweet some stuff out. So I actually, it was, I think, the middle of the night, and I, I did a tweet that went viral, which simply said, I just don't remember this much uh, chaos when George Santos was the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Uh, but, um, you know, it was it was a surreal time. But you're right that it was an amazing feeling on the Democratic side because um, we all had gotten behind Hakeem Jeffries. And uh, Yvette will remember, uh, she actually asked me to get Hakeem Jeffries to come do one of our brunches a few years ago um, because he is such a great, loyal, faithful Democratic Party organizer and builder and servant from the bottom up. I mean, he didn't just show up at the last minute um, and want to do it. Um, yeah, he's been paying his dues for a long time. So it was very easy choice for me. And I think for a lot of us to say Hakeem is ready to go and he's been studying under Pelosi and he uh, offers a lot of his own skills. I mean, he's just great on TV in terms of a message and he speaks in rhyming couplets oftentimes, and uh, he's got a very Shakespearean way about him. Um, and so we were completely unified. And then what we saw was chaos on um, the right wing because of the Freedom Caucus and 20 or 25 members who basically said that they hated Kevin McCarthy, but they would sell their soul to him if they could get this or that. And it was basically a week of auction items where they were auctioning off different parts of the Republican agenda. I mean, it's a, a really important prism for seeing what's going on right now with the debt crisis, because no Congress in American history has ever driven a president to the point of defaulting on the full faith and credit of the United States, defaulting on debts that we owe to the Social Security recipients, to veterans collecting uh, benefits to bondholders of the country. It's never happened before. And Kevin McCarthy knows how deranged it is, but he's been driven there by this group of 20 or 30 people, the Jim Jordan, uh, you know, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene people um, who really don't care. And they would much rather plunge America into a recession and into a situation where millions of people lose their jobs um, than to allow us to move forward um, with, you know, the democratic policies, basically. It's a rule or ruin party at this point. Um, so, um, yeah, th th that was a scary week and we're still paying the consequences for it. That actually answers, partially answers the next question I have for you. I was going to ask you, can you update our listeners on the debt limit situation, which you touched on? And then what else would you say, this is my last political question for you. What else would you say is your top priority for your office and your committee in the next couple months? Okay, well, on the debt crisis, here's what I think people need to understand, or at least what I can offer that's a little bit different. Because as you know, I bring always a constitutional perspective to these things. So, you know, I'm not the big budget expert or anything, but I'll tell you that there is a provision in the Constitution which um, is totally um, controlling of this situation. Section four of the 14th Amendment says that the validity of the public debt shall not be questioned. The reason why that's in the Constitution is because after the Civil War and after the end of Reconstruction, um, a lot of the uh, former pro-Confederate forces got back into Congress and they didn't want the federal government to repay the northern states for costs that had been incurred during the Civil War, which L President Lincoln had promised to them would be repaid after the Civil War. So these were 
absolute undisputed debts. And so when the Southern states were trying to undermine the union's willingness to pay those debts after the Civil War, um, the radical Republicans at that point said, uh, no, we're going to build this into the 14th Amendment. The validity of the public debt shall not be questioned. Well, we're going through the exact same process today. Because remember, when we're talking about the debt crisis, we're not talking about anything forward looking. It's all about paying the debts of the country that have already been incurred. And no Congress or no extreme fringe element of a party in Congress has ever come close to forcing a president to default before in the way they're trying to force Biden to do it. And they can't do it. And that's my whole point, that that if they were to refuse to come to a negotiation on this, President Biden would have to just go ahead and pay all of those debts. He would have to pay the bondholders and the Social Security recipients and the Medicare recipients and the veterans. There's no choice. It's built into the Constitution. And like Lincoln said during the Civil War, when he circumnavigated the habeas corpus clause, he said, should I enforce this one provision, the habeas corpus clause, and let the rest of the Constitution and the rest of the laws go to hell? Or should I enforce all of the other laws in the Constitution and essentially avoid the crisis being caused by this one law? And I think Biden's in the exact same situation. He cannot allow them to run the economy of the United States off of a cliff right now. And so ultimately, I think President Biden holds all the cards. He's got to pay the bondholders. He's got to pay the Social Security recipients. It's a constitutional command and a statute cannot override the Constitution. Congressman, you never cease to uh, amaze us with how well you know the, the Constitution. You had to be an incredible law professor, constitutional law professor back, back in the day. Well, that, that's kind of you to say. I mean, I, I feel like I'm still trying to teach constitutional law. It's just they're not <laughs> listening over on the other side of the aisle. But, you know, a lot of these little provisions that I didn't know much about, like Section 4 of the 14th Amendment, I've been forced to study during the period of Trump mega crisis in America. But uh, the wisdom of the founders and the wisdom of um, success, you know, succeeding generations never ceases to amaze me that they were so prescient in building these things in. I, w I wish some of the Republicans on the other side would study the Constitution uh, as, as hard as you have. That's, that's for sure. Congressman, I'm going to get you into some rapid fire fun questions here at, at the end. We'll, we'll take it easy on the political stuff. Now, here's where we really get into the tough stuff. Uh, first question right off the bat. Uh, first thing that comes to mind when I when I ask these things. So I'll start off with Ravens or Commanders? Who are you going with? Oh, jeez. Well, um, I, I grew up as a big fan of the, shall we say, the predecessor to the Commanders. Um, then when things went awry with them, um, I got interested in the Ravens, uh, but I, you know, my heart still was always with the Washington team. So um, I would say the Ravens is my second favorite team, a close, a close second. And a lot of the people I served with in Annapolis were big Raven fans like Bobby Zirkin uh, from Baltimore County, Jim Broach, and they were Ravens people. But um, I'm rooting for the commanders to uh, come along and uh, show us what they can do. That's a fair answer. Now, because I asked you that one, I have to follow up with Orioles or Nationals. Um, I'm a Nats fan. Um, again, um, I do like going to the O's games, and I love um, I love the stadium there. Um, 
And so I guess that would be my number two choice um, as a, a native son of the area, but um, I'm, I'm cheering for the Nats. If you could have lunch or a beer or coffee, I guess, with one of the first 40 presidents, who would you choose? Well, you know, I am obsessed with Lincoln and I've got Lincoln's um, uh, bust on my desk, which I inherited from my grandfather. So I guess I would have to say Lincoln first. Um, I remember what JFK said about uh, he had he had all these Nobel Prize winners over to the White House for dinner. And he said there had never been such a distinguished uh, dinner company at the White House since the night Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, Jefferson is a, is an object of historical fascination, obviously, as flawed as he was on a number of things, uh, most prominently uh, the slavery question. Um, but, um, you know, I think LBJ is also somebody extremely interesting. And the only reason I'm not saying Obama is because I actually have had meals with Obama. Um, and uh, Obama and I would have been law school classmates, but of course he took several years off to go be an organizer and he did the right thing. But he and I graduated from high school the same year, 79, uh, college the same year, 83. And then um, um, he took some time off, but I, but we, we share a common mentor and um, friend in Professor Larry Tribe, who um, introduced me to Barack Obama very early on. And so I was early on the uh, Obama wagon with uh, uh, Elijah Cummings, uh, who was a big supporter of, her, of his in the state when a lot of the other people were still going with Hillary. Now, I was going to ask you, the, the next one was going to be funniest, who is the funniest member of the Maryland congressional delegation, but I'm going to expand it a little bit. Who do you think is the, the most funny Democrat in the House of Representatives? Well, um, you know, uh, I, I think that we should, we, what we need is a, a far more scientific determination of the answer to your question. I think what we need is a a comedy night to raise some money for the Democratic Party and let's put everybody out there, you know. Um, but there's some funny people there. Uh, my colleague, Abigail Spanberger from Virginia, once answered that exact same question on C-SPAN by saying that she thought I was the funniest member, um, which was the proudest day of my life, I must say. But, um, you know, I think that that she's got a viable claim to the title, too. Um, and I think AOC can be really funny. Um, so there are definitely some funny people out there. Of course, the funniest person in Congress was Al Franken before he left under not very funny circumstances. Um, so I think that our humor quotient went down when Franken left the Congress. That's that's why I wanted to ask you, because I know you've been the answer to a lot of people's when they when they answer who's the funniest, you've been the you've been the answer. So I wanted to ask you who's <laughs> the second funniest then in, in the House. So if you say Congresswoman uh, Kaja Cortez and Congresswoman Spanberger, we can have them all in Maryland. We'll do a talent show. We'll get a little fundraiser to go and we'll see what happens. That, that could be That's a, good... a great idea. I, I think Maxwell Frost from Florida is very funny. And uh, I happen to think that Congressman John Sarbanes is uh, an absolute riot in the pre-January 6th sense of the word. Because, um, you know, he's been my friend since law school. I love uh, J.P. Sarbanes. And I think he's got an extremely witty and dry sense of humor. Um, and uh, so he he's an unsung comic hero himself. So we'll have to tease John Sarbanes out. That sounds good. Uh, uh, the next question I have for you is, what's your, where's your favorite place to visit or get away to in Maryland outside of your district? Well, so I went to summer camp um, in Wharton, Maryland at a place called Echo Hill Camp. 
Uh, and there's there are a few other people in politics who also went to Echo Hill um, on the Chesapeake Bay. And um, for my 60th birthday, um, I uh, took my whole family out there. We went to Echo Hill and they set up some fun and games for us. We did capture the flag and soccer and some other stuff. And that was great fun. So I always love going back there. I have such fond memories and I love the Eastern shore and I love wandering around there. Um, you know, my district used to include Frederick and Carroll County and I absolutely fell in love uh, with those two beautiful counties and love to explore there. So we got some great Democrats in Frederick and, and uh, Carroll County. Um, but, um, you know, I, I could obviously spend all day in Montgomery County and I usually do. So we do have some good Democrats in Frederick. We had a county executive Fitzwater on a few weeks ago and, and she was outstanding. Frederick County is in good hand with with her. Um, what, what's the best food spot in Montgomery County? Well, mm, I don't know that I can commit to that. There are so many restaurateurs who I support, but we do love going to. Um, Oh, geez. Well, um, we we love going to Larry Law's uh, Chinese restaurant in Friendship Heights. That's uh, amazing. Um, and um, we love uh, the Middle Eastern Market. It's been renamed the Olive Lounge in Tacoma Park. Um, but I don't know. I'm going to send you a, a top 10 list um, for a more thorough, comprehensive answer. <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever given us a top 10 list for, for this question. So I appreciate that. Uh, who would you say has been the biggest influence in your life? Well, you know, I, I kind of wrote, you know, my, my book, Unthinkable, which is really about our son, Tommy, and about what happened on January 6th and impeachment, uh, talks about a lot of the people who were great influences in my life and everybody in my family and our three kids, Hannah, Tommy, and Tabitha, and my wife, Sarah, and my parents, and lots of other people. And um, I had a remarkable professor in college named Judith Schlar, who was a political philosopher who wrote, I think, the greatest book of moral and political philosophy ever called Ordinary Vices, which I highly recommend to people. Um, Larry Tribe has been a great influence and a continuing influence and friend in my life um so those are just some of them but if um if you check out my book you'll you'll get to read a lot of names of people both um famous and not famous who've been super influences on me and of course you know i love bruce springsteen and the e street band as you know and a little steven and nils lofgren have been super duper supportive of me through the through my chemo period. Now, I know between you know, kicking cancer's butt and, and holding up democracy for us, this seems a little trivial, but what's the last show you got to binge watch? Well, we, um, we've been checking out Billions at the suggestion of our daughters, which is an amazing show. Um, and Succession is incredible, uh, you know. And um, so, yeah, I get addicted to a lot of those, especially during my chemo insomnia period. I, you know, I've been watching a, a lot of those shows. We're definitely living in the golden age of television. Uh, it's just amazing what's going on there. I was asking um, my chief of staff the other day whether movie theaters even still exist because, I mean, what you can get home is so amazing. Um, and I guess relatively free, depending on how much we're paying for our monthly fees, you know.
the very last one I have for you, I know you've, you've taken a ton of time with us and we really appreciate it. The very last one I got for you, who would be like, what would your Mount Rushmore Maryland politicians be? Like, give me like four of your most elite favorite Maryland politicians of all time, if you can. Oh, wow. Um, that's a tough one. Well, Elijah Cummings comes to mind uh, immediately. Um, you know, uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall, he was never really a politician in Maryland, but uh, is such a critical figure in the history of our state, as was Frederick Douglass, who never got to run for office here. But I mean, it's hard to imagine a greater political leader and visionary in the 19th century than uh, than Douglass. Um, you know, former Senator Sarbanes and former Senator Mikulski were extraordinary in terms of solidifying a kind of New Deal, progressive, great society uh, consensus within the Democratic Party and pushing that forward and being on the side of civil rights and fair housing laws and so on. Um, so I don't know, maybe Yvette Lewis uh, is just, a, you know, the, the greatest state party chair in our history. Um, maybe she just did it longer than Terry Learman, but he was pretty great too. But uh, Yvette, to me, so much embodies and personifies the spirit of the Democratic Party. And I love everything she's been able to do with Democrats around the state. And she's committed to every one of our districts and every one of our counties. And I mean, there, there must be 10 of her because she's ubiquitous, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to tell you, you are very easy to love. Very easy to love, Congressman Raskin. Thank you guys for having me. I think um, somebody's been knocking at my door for the last 25 minutes, so I better go find out who that is. Yeah, Congressman, thank you so much. I know we've probably gone over your time, but thank you so much for joining us. That's been an incredible show to kick off the new season. We really appreciate your time. We hope everyone enjoys the show. Tell your friends, subscribe, and leave a review. More importantly, stay informed, read a little bit, and keep working. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next time. And keep binge watching the Democrats too. Yeah, there you go.